Good morning, Faith family. I want to invite you, if you will, to open up your Bibles or your Bible apps into James chapter 2. James chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. Next week, Pastor Matt will be back leading us in our study of God's Word together as we begin a new sermon series called The Story of God from the book of Genesis. So hope that you will be looking forward with anticipation to that. But in the meantime, I am honored to be able to be here with you this morning as we study God's Word together in this second week of our two-week sermon series that we're calling Good Work Last week, if you were unable to be with us or haven't caught it online, we looked at Ephesians chapter two, the first 10 verses there, where we learned from the apostle Paul that at one time, while we were dead in our sins, that God who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us made us alive together with Christ and saved us by grace through faith. And in doing so made us a new creation created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared ahead of time for us to do. We've heard that testified to this morning here in the baptistry. We've seen even a picture of it, of dying to our old ways and being raised again to that new life that God gives us in Christ and what gloriously good news that is for us. And so today, in light of that good news, we now turn our attention from Ephesians 2 to James 2 in order to see that the good works which God has made us for, which he's created, which he's prepared ahead of time for us to do, they are absolutely essential for each and every follower of Christ. And so let's look at that together and uh, invite you to follow along with me as we read James chapter 2. Verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by works faith was made complete and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, as we read that, you might've picked up on the fact that James seems to be a little worked up. Like at one point in the person that he's kind of interacting with here, he calls them a senseless person. And in my text, it has an exclamation point there. If it was like texted to someone, it'd be all caps, senseless person. Why can't you learn this? Like he's really worked out. And I think one of the reasons he's worked up is because of something he's been addressing earlier in chapter two. 
He's been addressing a very practical problem, a very specific problem with his readers. And that is this, the prejudice in their own hearts, the sin of favoritism, as they have been showing preferential treatment to the well-to-do, the wealthy, the rich among them at the expense of neglecting the poor that is among them. And so to help rectify that, James calls them to do what his brother Jesus called them to do, what the law of Moses called them to do. He calls them to love their neighbors as themselves. He basically says, hey, if you're doing that, if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing good. And if you're not doing that, if you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, then you're not doing good. Things really are that simple, that black and white for James. He's just continuing with a theme that he began back in chapter one when he said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. James wants his readers to realize that what they read in God's word is meant to result in action. Their walk with God is meant to be marked by obedience every step of the way. But that hasn't been the case. And us here this morning, if we will be honest and vulnerable for a moment, we'll have to admit that for us, it's often not the case either. We live in a context of cultural Christianity that makes things a little easy for us. Like you can say you're a Christian and people smile politely and nod their heads and don't necessarily expect a lot more out of you. In fact, you can even abandon many of the Orthodox teachings of the historic church and still claim you're a Christian and everyone continues to kind of smile and nod their heads and it seems like, eh, it's no big deal. Except James is saying, hey, it's a super big deal. We can't just say that we believe and it not result in righteous obedience to God. We can't say that we have faith and not back it up with good works. And James wants his readers to grasp that and he begins doing so by asking these kind of two rhetorical questions right at the beginning. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? The implied answers, of course, are, well, it's no good. That faith can't save them. Faith without works is no good. Faith without works cannot save. Why? Well, because of the way James describes it elsewhere in the chapter. That kind of faith, apart from works, it's dead by itself. Well, so in light of that truth, and what we learned from Ephesians 2 last week, then we have to come to this conclusion. New life comes through faith that is alive. New life comes through faith that is alive. When Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 about us being dead in our sins, even though we're actually still physically alive, he was helping us see that though we may have a heartbeat and we continue to draw breath, that the corruption of sin within us, it makes it so that we're as good as dead. Well, James is making a similar point here in regards to faith. He's not trying to actually make a case that there are two kinds of faith. There's faith with works and there's faith without works. No, his point is that a faith that doesn't lead to good works is as good as dead. In fact, that's really no faith at all. That, a faith that doesn't lead to good works, that's not true saving faith. It doesn't exist. That's most clear when he creates a very startling picture for his readers in verse 19. 
where he writes, you believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Now James is really pushing some buttons here that we might miss out on. Because what James has taken on here is what's known as the Shema, the foundational confession of the Jewish people that's from Deuteronomy 6.4, where it's written, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And James is saying, hey, guess what? The demons know that. And they believe it, and they shudder. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Lion King with the hyenas. And someone says, Mufasa, and they go, ooh. And they're like, oh, say it again. They go, Mufasa, ooh. They shudder. That, that's, that's just a little picture of kind of what this is like. At the mention of this truth, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The demons know that. They believe it. It causes them to shudder. It, it causes an effect from them. It causes an action out of them. Only with the demons, is it a good action? Is it a good work? No. It is an evil work because they remain the enemy of God. And when we were dead in our sins, we stood right there with them. And we can even in our context of cultural Christianity, we can continue to do so because it begs the question, if demons know and believe the foundational confession of the Jewish people, do they also know and believe the foundational confession of the Christian people? Do they know and believe that sin separates us from God? Do they know and believe that God loved us enough to send his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to this earth? Do they know and believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin? Do they know and believe that he then rose from the grave in order to demonstrate his power over sin and death? Do they know and believe that he now sits at the right hand of the Father? Do they know and believe that he has promised to come again to judge the living and the dead? And the answer is yes. They do know and believe that but it doesn't result in anything within them that is good, that is righteous. It results in them and things that are evil. So what is James's point? Well, just believing something that even the demons know and believe, that's not going to cut it by itself. Something else is needed. Something more is needed. And for James, that more that is needed is good works. Well, why? What exactly does good works accomplish? Well, good works, first, they are the signs of life for the Christian. Good works are the signs of life for the Christian. Just before verse 19, James wrote, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. We said last week that good works are outward signs of an inward reality, that they show that by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, he has made us alive in Christ. We're no longer the living dead, the zombies kind of shambling around with some semblance of life, but really riding away from the inside. No, we are now a new creation given new life. And how do we know that life exists? How does anyone know that life exists? Well, you look at what we do. You look at the good works that are produced in us and through us. My first church staff position many years ago was part of a student ministry. 
And one spring while I was on staff at that church, one of our students was in a terrible, terrible car accident that left him in a extremely critical, life-threatening situation. I remember going up to the hospital and speaking with the family and uh, his mother asking me if I'd like to go in and to see him. His name was Anthony. I said, yes, I would, I would be honored to. So I went into the room. Liza was on that church staff as well, so she went in with me. And we spoke to Anthony, told him how much we missed him, how sorry we were that this had happened, how much we were praying for him and praying for his healing. I talked specifically about uh, our student ministry band because Anthony was a great guitar player. And so I said, hey man, the band, like they're really struggling. Like I named some of his friends that were on the band. Like we really need, we need you to get well. We need you to come back to us. And when I mentioned the guitar and I mentioned his friends by name, Anthony moved. Like his arms just tensed up like this. It felt like there was an exhale, exhale of breath. Because otherwise he was completely sedated. There were all these machines he was hooked up to that were doing everything he needed. Now, did he do that in response to anything that I said? I, I don't know. But regardless, it was a sign that there was still life within Anthony. There was still something happening there. A few days later, we got the phone call that we all dreaded that it was time to come back and to say goodbye to Anthony. And so I drove back to the hospital and back to the waiting room and talked with his mother again and then went into the room one more time to speak with him. And this time there was no movement. There's still the beeps and the boops of the machines. Things were still moving. There's still sign of a heartbeat. There's still sign of breath, but the machines were doing it all for him. There was no sign of life from within him. And that's what good works are like for us. They show that we're not dead inside. There's new life within us, the life that God made us for. They demonstrate that we really do have life with God here and now. They are signs of life for us and for the world around us. There are signs of life for us because good works conform us to and grow us in righteousness. They conform us to righteousness and they grow us in righteousness. The book of James can be an extremely difficult book of the Bible to study. And this passage this morning is one of most, possibly the most difficult passage within the book of James. And one of the reasons that's the case is because of what James wrote in verse 24. When he said, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This passage and that verse in particular is what led some of the reformers to really struggle with how to understand the book of James. Martin Luther famously called James a right straw epistle, which evidently is a really big insult. Like what Luther meant was, hey, the book of James could kind of burn up like straw and we probably wouldn't be missing out on too much. Pretty harsh, considering the word of God. Well, what is it that had them all worked up? Well, it was one of the foundational principles of the Reformation, sola fide, salvation by faith alone. This is how the apostle Paul wrote about it in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter three, verses 26 through 28, Paul wrote, God presented him, talking about Christ, God presented him 
to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Okay, so Paul in Romans three, we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. James in chapter two, we are justified by works and not faith alone. Uh Uh-oh, what in the world is going on here? Well, to help us make sense of this, we have to begin with understanding what is meant by that word justified. What does it mean for someone to be justified? Well, a very simple understanding of it is it just means being made good and right. Being made righteous. When we are justified, we are made righteous. And both James and Paul have that understanding in mind when they use the word justified, except they're looking at it from two different viewpoints. You see, in Romans 3, Paul is concerned mostly about what we call positional righteousness. In other words, it has to do with who we are before God. So when we are in our sins and we stand before God, we are sinners. There is nothing righteous about us whatsoever. It doesn't matter what kind of good we think we accomplish. There is no good within us. We are just completely sinful. We are sinners. That is who we are. That is our position before him. But when, because of his rich mercy and his great love for us, he makes us alive together with Christ by grace through faith, he then accomplishes what Paul wrote about in verse 26 of Romans 3. He declares us righteous in Christ, forgives our sins, and gives us Christ's own righteousness. So now we are no longer sinners in our position before God. We are now righteous children of God just as Jesus is the righteous son of God. There's nothing that's required of us. It doesn't have anything to do with who we are or any works that we've done or any works that we eventually will do for God. It's not based on any of that. It's just based on God's mercy and his love and his grace and then the faith that he gifts us. Well, James, when he writes about us being justified, he's not, coming, he's not looking at it from a position of positional righteousness. He's concerned with more practical righteousness. In other words, once we've been made alive together with Christ, what happens now? Well, what happens is God continues to work in us. He's declared us righteous, but he continues to conform us to righteousness, conform us more and more to the image of his son, to grow us in righteousness. How, how does he do that? By calling us to do the good works that he's prepared ahead of time for us to do. So in James's sense, we are justified by works and not by faith alone because works are necessary to conform us to righteousness and to help us grow in righteousness. Think about it this way. My daughter, Story, is a big soccer player and her love for soccer began when I coached her on her three-year-old soccer team. When you coach a three-year-old soccer team, there's not always a lot of soccer that's happening, okay? But they show up and they've got a cute little uniform, they've got little shin guards and they've got little cleats 
and they've got a real shiny ball that's never been kicked or gotten dirty in any way. Most of them have never seen a soccer match before. They don't know the rules. It's just, it's the sport that kids can play when they're three. And so their parents signed them up and here they are on the field. And when they walk out there on the field, me as their coach, I say, guess what guys? We're a soccer team. You're a soccer player. They don't know how to do anything. So while they are a soccer player, are they a good one? No, they're terrible. And so you have to teach them. You have to teach them the rules. You have to develop skills. That's what happened with Story is we taught her the rules. Don't touch it with your hands. Don't go out of bounds. Kick it in that net. Not this one, that one. She began to learn to dribble and to juggle and to shoot and to defend. She practices and practices and practices. She works with coaches. She works with peers on her team. She works with people that are older than her who can help her see ways that she needs to improve. She gets one-on-one instruction. Slowly, she becomes conformed to the image of a soccer player. And she grows in what it means to be a soccer player. That's what good works do for us. They're us learning the rules, developing the skills, and practicing and practicing and practicing what's already true about us. We are the righteous children of God, but in doing good works, we are living out that righteousness. And James gives two examples of his own of what this looks like. He gives Abraham and Rahab. He picks two people that seemingly don't have a ton in common. Might even be a little shocking to the readers. I mean, after all, you've got a patriarch here. Father of the Israelite people. And you've got a prostitute over here, a Gentile, one of the enemies of God's people. They're in Jericho. But in both of them, James was raising them up as examples of how they were justified by their good works. It was credited to them as righteousness. But remember, James isn't thinking about their positional righteousness, who they are before God. Because that changed for Abraham when God entered into covenant with him and Abraham initially put his faith and trust in God at that moment. For Rahab, it happened when she heard about and learned about the God of the Israelites and she came to believe for herself that this must be the one true God, Yahweh. Therefore, she would trust him, even if it meant the destruction of all her fellow countrymen. But that led them to do good things. For Abraham to walk in obedience and whatever God called him to do, even if it meant sacrificing his son, Isaac. For Rahab to risk everything by taking in those messengers and helping ensure that they got out. And in each instance, that good work as a result of their faith is then credited to them as righteousness. It's not what makes them righteous. God does that then it's a credit to their righteousness, a way that they're being conformed to the life that God has made for them in a way that they are growing in their righteousness and their good that God is accomplishing in them. And in each of those instances, he does it not just for their good, it's for the good of others, for the good of Isaac, for the good of the messengers, but also good for God's people, for the Israelites as a whole. Because our good works aren't just signs of life for us, they're also signs of life for others because good works exhibit and demonstrate the grace and mercy of God to the world around us. They exhibit and demonstrate the grace and mercy of God to the world around us. 
Good works aren't just signs of life that show we are living and growing in the righteousness God has given us. They are also signs of life that show the world around us what God has accomplished in our lives and the truth that he can accomplish the same thing in their lives. He's made us alive and he can make you alive. And you can see that through our good works. James here was writing to these people who had been neglecting the poor in order to pay more attention to the prominent and prosperous. And he wanted them to know that that wasn't right, that that wasn't good. That's why he uses the question that he does in verses 15 and 16, where he writes, if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well-fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? Of course, he's implying it's no good. Because when James wrote of good works, among other things, he definitely had acts of mercy in mind. Hey, when you see a need, meet that need. That's a good work. And we here, we are surrounded by people in need. People here in our church, people here in our community, people who are poor, who are lacking clothes and food for themselves. People who are struggling with illness, with addiction, with loneliness, with depression. As we've prayed about people who are facing the effects of human trafficking, of other types of oppression, we are surrounded by people in need. And because we live in a context of cultural Christianity, many of them are familiar to things and may be wondering to themselves, where is God in all this? Why isn't he coming to help me in my need? When the truth is, that he is, because you're there and he wants you to help. After all, God is rich in mercy and so he wants us to do good works of mercy. Whenever we look and we see people in need, we don't start by asking, what did this person do to get themselves in this situation? Why can't they get their act together right now? No, the first response of a Christian whenever we see a person in need is mercy. It is love, it is grace, and it is compassion. We don't just exhibit it to them. We don't just talk about it with them. We also demonstrate it for them. We show it by living it, by doing good work. Because a faith claimed of any other kind apart from his good work, not only at work in us, but it worked through us in the lives of others, it's useless. That's a dead faith. And God is in the business of life, not death. It's what he desires for everyone in need around us, that they would see our good works and they too could give glory to God in heaven along with us. Was the new creation as followers of Christ with new lives then, how should we respond to what we've learned these two weeks from Paul and James about the good work of God accomplished in our lives and that he's prepared to accomplish through our lives. How should we respond? Well, it's very simple. We do good works. That's it, that's the application. We, we do good works. He's prepared them for us. He's got all the ingredients ready. He's got all the instructions laid out for us. It's right there. We just do them. That's who he's made us to be. We are his workmanship, Ephesians 2, 10 says. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared ahead of time for us to do. 
Okay, so what are these good works then? How do we know what are the good works to do? Well, I would start with the suggestion that you look right here. The Bible is full of good works he has prepared for us to do. Now, the Bible is way more than a rule book. It's way more than a list of commands or jobs for us to accomplish, but it's also not less than that. As we read the story of God and his people contained within the pages of scripture, we discover countless good works that he has prepared ahead of time for us to do. So as you read the Bible and the New Testament, pay careful attention to all the one another's, love one another, rejoice with one another, bear one another's burdens. It goes on and on and on. Read the book of Acts and pay careful attention to how the church, you know, acts. And they do, do, do those things. As you read all of scripture, listen to the Holy Spirit. It's how he works in your lives and at times stirs things within you. Building within you a desire to obey what it is that you have learned and read. But I don't wanna just leave us with some general encouragement to do the good works of the Bible this morning. I wanna try to give us some practical handles that we can live out, how we can do these good works. And I wanna do it in three specific areas. And the first one is this. I want us to consider how we can do good works here. How we can do good works here. And by that, I mean here within our church. Yes, maybe on our campus, but more importantly, I just mean among our people, among our faith family here at Brick Hills. A few suggestions would be, one would be to prioritize gathering for worship. Prioritize gathering for worship. Obviously, over the past two years, there's been some mitigating circumstances that has made that difficult at times and maybe even impossible for some of us. But we know that even in this season, God is still sovereign. He's still in control. The truth of his word still holds true. And we know that this too will pass. And so let's work toward a time where we are gathering together again because we need each other. We need each other to worship God together, but we also need each other to encourage one another, to provoke one another on to love and good works. And gathered worship is a primary place that that takes place, but it's not the only place. It's not the only type of gathering we want in our lives. And so in addition to prioritizing gathering for worship, I encourage you to join a small group. If you're not already in a small group, join a small group. Get in a smaller group of people here within our larger church with whom you can provoke one another to love and good works. Where you can get to know people, where you can invest in one another's lives, where you can play out those one another's, where you can intentionally give and receive spiritual encouragement, where you can demonstrate the love, mercy, grace, and compassion of God toward one another. And then also I'd encourage you to consider a way to serve to serve our brothers and sisters here at Brook Hills. You know, we say one of our chief pursuits is we pursue ministry, which leads us to invest sacrificially. And we want to invest our resources sacrificially, but in addition to that, we also want to invest our time. We want to invest ourselves. So find a place to serve, join our hospitality team. Volunteer with one of our age group ministries. We're on a camera here for worship gatherings. There are countless opportunities. So find a way to serve each other, but don't stop serving here because we don't want to just do good works here. We also want to do good works there. 
want to do good works there. And I mean, away from our church. Specifically, I just mean here in our neighborhoods, in our schools, our workplaces, around our city. Some suggestions would be to make a new friend this year. Again, we're surrounded by people that are in need. Many with physical needs. Many with spiritual needs. And again, you may be the one. You're the one that God has put. They have you here to help. To help them. To again, show them that love, mercy, grace, and compassion. So befriend them. And as you do, meet the need. Whatever the need is, meet the need. See a need, meet the need. Do good work. There's all kinds of ways that that can play out with friends, but there's also many needs in our city. Our city ministries has all kinds of partners that we work with in order to meet needs in our city and throughout our city. So look for a place that you can get plugged in, that you can get involved. And as we're meeting those physical needs, though, of course we don't want to neglect meeting the spiritual needs as well. So also as we consider doing good work, let's, you know, share the gospel. Saturate your speech with the good news of Jesus Christ. Learn how to tell your story of how God transformed you, of how he gave you new life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and then tell that story often, as often as you can, to friends, to neighbors, to people who live in our city, also to people who are coming to our city, like the world games that we just prayed about earlier. What a unique opportunity is to actually meet some needs in our city, needs of hosting all of these people, but then also prayerfully to perhaps find opportunities to share the gospel with people that live here or with people that are from around the world because the nations this summer are coming here to Birmingham. But even while we're excited about them coming here, we also know that we're called to go to them. So let's look for ways to do good works here, there, and also everywhere. Let's do good works everywhere, around the world, among all nations, among all peoples. One way for you to do that is to get to know our missionaries, get to know those people we've sent out, know their names, know the work that they're doing, know the people that they're serving among, know the needs that they have. Every time we commission someone, get that prayer card and don't let it fall out of your possession. Keep it and keep it handy and keep it prominent so you continuously come back to it and be reminded of those people that are brothers and sisters that we have sent out. And as you know them, so that you also can pray for them. Pray for them and pray for their needs. Pray for the people that they are serving among. On the second Sunday of every month, our global team hosts a specific prayer time in the community room. Come and be a part of that. That's at 8 a.m. Every, every second Sunday. You can get a chance to get to know some of our people we've sent out, to hear about their needs, and to spend time praying together with one another. And then, of course, a way to consider how to do good works everywhere all around the world is for you to go somewhere. Consider going short-term. Consider going mid-term, maybe even long-term. There are opportunities we have right now to do those, and then we're gonna have many opportunities in the future. So consider whether or not that is something, one of the works that God has prepared for you to do, and then do it. 
You know, each week we close with the Great Commission and obviously includes the admonition to go and make disciples. And that word go in the original is not just a command to go, it's, it's a participle. It carries with it not just the idea of a destination where you will arrive, but also the whole process of going. As you are going, make disciples. It's the idea that we're just doing these things as we are going about life, as we are living, as we're going intentionally, but also as we're just living our lives here. And so as we close this morning, that's what I want us to think about, that as we are going about our day today, as we are going about our week, as we are going about our year, let's live out our living faith. Let's live out this new life that God has given us so that others might also come to know him. Let's do good work.